Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome to part three in Patterns in Jewish History. Um, this week's class is, so to a certain degree, going to dovetail with next week's class. Now next week's class is the secret of Jewish success and uh, the various uh, theories and philosophies behind why Jews have been so disproportionately successful in so many different areas except sport, but, uh, yeah, you know, it was funny, I was, I was, uh, I was preparing something that I thought I might use on Purim, like a game show, and I was like, which of these celebrities isn't Jewish, and you like have four, you know, and, you know, and then you have like four singers, and which one isn't Jewish, and it says, which of these sportsmen, and I have everyone who's like, Cohen, Levy, something, something, and the answer is, none of them are Jewish, you know, like, just they're all... Anyway, so the reason it dovetails because this week when we talk about anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, so much anti-Semitism has been attributed, whether rightfully or wrongfully, we'll just discuss this evening, due to that disproportionate success, that the Jews uh, somehow have overreached their, their, their rightful levels of influence in society, and that is why the Jews are hated. But that's, that is for next week. So this week... Let's talk um, a little bit about anti-Semitism. Now, unlike what I did in the last two weeks, which tried to progress things through a timeline, what I'd like to talk about is really different kinds of anti-Semitism and how they've manifested themselves throughout history. So the first real time that we see anti-Semitism comes, if, I mean, I suppose defining anti-Semitism um, is something which I will not be doing this evening. But let's say hatred for Jews or hatred for the Jewish people um, comes up at the beginning of, of Parshat and Sefer uh, Shmot, the beginning of Exodus. But it says, So a new king arose in Egypt that didn't know Joseph. So the commentary is over here where it says, what do you mean he didn't know Joseph? Joseph, we see throughout the latter books, the latter parishes of uh, Breshit, was personally responsible for saving Egypt from a disastrous drought. He did everything in his power to make Egypt the powerhouse, the financial powerhouse, economic powerhouse in the world that um, you know, was, you know, would not have been if it was not for him. Yet, a few generations later, a new king arises who doesn't know Joseph. So the question is, did he really not know Joseph? That he was, or he made as if he did not, Joseph, did not know Joseph. So that's the dispute amongst the various commentaries. But one way or another, he says, And he said to his nation, Behold, the Jewish people, the Israelites, are more numerous and more powerful than us. Let us deal wisely with them, lest they should multiply, and it should be that when someone, that were a war to occur, that they, the Bnei Yisrael, would join with our enemies, and they will wage war against us, and they will leave the land. Which is very bizarre. I mean, if, you, if you haven't read Parashat Shemot, you know, it's a, what's the concern? They're getting very powerful. They're very numerous. We're scared that they become even more numerous. And then when an outside force attacks us, they're going to join up with the enemies, not and kick us out of the land, but they're going to draw, They're going to leave, and we don't want them to leave. So whether it was that we saw them as a as a free resource, we being the Egyptians saw them as a free resource. But what is quite fascinating, if you go through the various midrashim. Now the midrashim we are talking around the year between 600 and 1,000 of the common era. Okay, so this is how long ago these Midrashim were written. So in the verses that you may be familiar with from the Seder, it talks about what happened to Bnei Yisrael. It says, Ubnei Yisrael and the Israelites paru v'yishritsu v'yirbu yasmu b'me'od me'od. And the Israelites were paru, they multiplied, v'yishritsu, and they swarmed. The word yishritsu comes from the root sheretz, which means like a, like a, a bug. I mean, something that, that swarmed. You know, if, if you think of uh, Hitler's use of the vermin and the rats running, that that's what the, word, the verb yishritsu means. You don't see it in any other context other than in dealing with vermin. But the Bnei Yisrael, yishritsu, v'yirbu, and they grew and they multiplied, v'yatsmu'u, b'ma'od, ma'od. And the v'yatsmu, they came strong, b'ma'od. So when you say in Hebrew, v'yatsmu, b'ma'od. 
You know, use the word but as a prefix. So the word mo'od, we most know, means very. But what is b'mo'od, with mo'od? There's this, v'asmu b'mo'od. They became very strong with mo'od. So what does mo'od mean? So how would you know your shema? You should love Hashem your God with all your heart so what does Mordecha mean there? so if you go look in all countries it says with all your means it means financial that you have to serve Hashem and the Gemara comes and says and tells you with all your soul why does it need to come and tell you with all your money Obviously, if I have to give up my life to serve Hashem, I'm going to have to give up my money. So Gemara, their answers, it says there are certain people who value their money over their lives, and there are certain people who value their lives over their money. So for those who value their money over their lives, you have to say, Bechol Mordecha. You have to serve Hashem with your Mordecha. But what the, what the verse here is saying, V'yatzmu'ud, they came exceedingly power, B'ma'od. They were the financial powerhouses of Egypt. V'tim aleha aret otam, and they filled the land was not filled with them, as we ordinary senses. The Medrash says, all the batei kirkasot v'teatrot, that all the circuses and all the theatres were filled with them. That the entire entertainment industry, again, this was written over a thousand years ago. The entire entertainment industry of Egypt was run and populated by the Israelites. Again, yeah, but that's the fascinating. If I said, oh, I'm going to read this back and say, but this is a medrash. You know, it's unbelievable how, how far back this goes. So what does Pharaoh do? He, gets, he says, not let's kill them. Pharaoh doesn't say let's kill them. He says, let's deal wisely with them. Lest things happen. So how does he deal wisely with them? So my guess is that, so how does Pharaoh deal? Listen, you know the Seder. How does Pharaoh deal wisely with us? What does he do? So, but how do you make them work? If I say, okay, but how do you make someone slave? So just come to a nation and say, all right, you guys are all free. Tomorrow you're going to be slaves. That's not wise. There has to be. So the concept of in Chakamalo, when it says, we've got this Jewish problem, we have to get rid of it. So if he says, go and kill all the Jews, go throw them in the river, whatever the case might be, you get it. But that's not dealing with it. So listen to what it says. V'asimu alav saramisi. And they placed on them Saramisim Laman Sivrotam. So this can be read in two ways. The Ramban reads it as follows. They appointed them as tax, tax, uh, tax men over them in order to oppress them, not oppress the Jews, in order that they should be the ones oppressing the Egyptians. Meaning, if, if you want to be a people that, that the Egyptians... Again, this is, we're talking here... Now, the Ramban is 12th century. Yeah, we're not talking modern. It says, if you want to destroy a nation, what you need is buy-in from your nation. And you need to make these people detestable. And the way you detest them, you make them... You put them in charge of tax. No one likes the tax man. And if you can make the tax man a very identifiable individual, i.e. the Jew, or the Israelites in this case, it creates an animosity that will underline that when eventually Pharaoh comes and says, throw them into the sea, he, he has a willing army of soldiers that will do his bidding because of the detestable nature of these Israelites. That is the beginning of the book of Shemot. And how do I know that this model is one that is going to be mimicked through the ages? Yeah. Yeah. What's that say? Not once in, in, has it been that someone will get up to try to destroy it. In every generation, someone gets up to destroy it. The book of Shmot is a paradigm, it is a model that anti-Semites will use throughout the ages, almost without exception. So much so that, that when you start reading Jewish history, and you start looking through the book of, it's, it, nothing's changed. It's not like there's a new anti-Semitism, there's nothing new about it. It might have morphed in the exact application of it, but it's not new. The idea of the Israelite posing a threat that needs to be eradicated, that threat real or imagined, 
is something that we see already in the formative stages of our nationhood, which happens in Egypt. Before Egypt, we are a family. After Egypt, we are a nation. And is that where it starts? So that's the, uh, let's say the first part. Now, as I, as I said, I want to do a focus on a number of different, let's say, forms of anti-Semitism that they've presented themselves throughout the ages rather than talking about the chronological. So um, this is by no real order of, uh, of preference, but let's start with uh, religious anti-Semitism. So religious anti-Semitism predominantly has come out of Christianity, albeit that we have had, uh, been oppressed by, you know, whether it be the Persian, the Greeks, the Babylonians, you know, the Romans, etc. Very little of that was religious in nature. It was often nationalistic in nature, and it was seldom anti-Semitism per se, in as much as it was just you know one nation against another nation. But Christian anti-Semitism has developed not so much um, in the early days of Christianity, but much more in the latter days once the Roman Empire had embraced Christianity as its national religion. Then all of a sudden, multiple m- ways of you know using Jew, you know using the Jew to become the victim of anti-Semitic tirades, really morphed in a number of different ways. So the first way, which is one that we've heard throughout the history, is the, the uh, claim of deicide. Deicide is that the Jews either were directly or at least partially responsible for the murder of Jesus, the crucifi- crucifixion of Jesus. And whether this Jew be through Judah Iscariot, who Judah, I assume, I'm going to assume you have no knowledge of the New Testament, but uh, that Judah was the one who sold out Jesus to the Romans and led you know, the Romans to him. Whether it be the fact that the Jewish elders of the Sanhedrin, who told uh, Pontius Pilate that Jesus deserved crucifixion and he should be put to death, and almost demanded of it, and uh, claimed that there would be civil war and riots and uprisings if they did not execute Jesus against the will of Pontius Pilate, who was a very righteous individual, as per Christian teaching, and the only reason that he agreed to the crucifixion was the pressure that the elders of Israel put upon him. So that's one form of deicide that we kill him. The second one, which actually probably has, I think, you know, if we're going to talk about uh, extent of damage done, was not so much deicide, but something that developed out of England, if not other places, in the year 1144. Well, that was of young William of Norwich, and that is the concept of blood libels. Now, blood libels, for those I'm sure we're all familiar with it, was the idea that Jews killed just Christian children. We uh, drained them of their blood, which we then subsequently baked into our matzahs. Now, for most of us, this is the most ridiculous claim. For all of us, it's the most ridiculous claim. Judaism throughout the Torah has uh, consistently... Um, abhorred the concept of consuming any blood because the nefesh bedam because the soul of the of the individual or the soul of the animal is in the blood and therefore the way you know the reason that we kill the animal through shechita by cutting the jugular is specifically to drain the animal as much blood as possible we then subsequently salt the blood the the meat in order that we drain as much blood so the concept of eating blood from a Jewish point of view is just an absolute anathema so Why on earth would such a claim arise? Well, here comes two fascinating uh, theories that have come up of recent. So, throughout Jewish history, the vast majority of opinions have been it was just craziness. You know, crazy people do crazy things. It's witch hunts of the ancient world. It was just a reason to go kill Jews. Invariably, each of these Christian children that went missing was subsequently found murdered. The Jew was usually tortured to the point of confessing the crime, and multiple Jews were murdered in the subsequent pogroms that emanated. The child was always, was well, not always, but was often, uh, it's not called sanctified. Yeah. Huh? Canonized. No, canonized. No, is it canonized? To become a saint? Yeah, canonized. It's a peace process. Um, no, no. So, so, huh? I don't know. But to become a saint. So this, this is, uh, so we are in interesting times because... This year, there have been. This year is the 100th anniversary of the trial of Mendel Baylis. Anyone know the story of Mendel Baylis? So it rings a bell. Okay, Mendel Baylis came out of, uh, was in Russia, and there was a whole accusation to blood libels that he had been accused of, of killing and uh, 
and uh, using the blood for his matzah. And we're talking now in 1913. Trial took place in Kiev. In 19, so I'm just, I, I didn't print up everything. I printed up a lot, but uh, there's an article. This is from Tablet Magazine. And this was, actually, it's not as... So, so what, what became interesting was a huge court case about the blood libels and the legitimacy of them. And Bendel Bayless was exonerated. That, that this is all consi- considered to be an absolute you know, rubbish and, and never. And everyone thought that that would be the end of the blood libels. Blood libels still exist in America in the 1930s. There were cases of blood libels until this very day. You will hear, go onto any of these, uh, these watchdog sites which tape uh, various uh, Muslim imams and the like talking of the fact that Israeli soldiers or kidnapping Palestinian children, harvesting their organs, or using their blood for ritual purposes. So the reality is that it is something that is still very real, as crazy it is. Now, my Tamar's grandmother um, was uh, is Hungarian, and her and Tamar's like Saba used to have a Polish worker. So, so you know, he, he needed a 24-hour care, so they had a Polish worker, not Jewish. And when it came to the Passover Seder, this we're talking is... 15 years ago. And it came to the Seder, the guy cowered in the corner as they ate matzah. And they said, what is wrong with you? And and they said he was visibly white. He said, he says, you eat in it. He says, do you think we put blood of Christian children in this bread? He says, yes, that was what I was taught. And the idea that in Poland people still think that under our kipot we have horns. This is as, as bizarre and crazy as we might think this is. The concept of blood libel is still very much alive. And tens of hundreds of thousands of Jews have perished as a result of these accusations. Now, why did these... So there are two theories you know, that have come out recently, uh, relatively recently. One, one came out from an article... A very hell of a controversial uh, book written by a professor of uh, history from Bari Lund University, no, no less, that the blood libels are actually true. Okay? This is from a, a historian. And it says, because throughout our history, as much as we like to think that we are all mainstream, we, like every community, have our people, our fanatics, our crazy people on the periphery. And he basically says, now, as I said, there are lots of confessions, and virtually all of these confessions were forced. So it's very hard to say that these are legitimate confessions. But the author, his name is Ariel Toaf, T-O-A-F-F. And his basic way through, he said, there were Jews throughout France that were zealots, and in ways of, you know, they were just Meshuggah fanatics. And as Meshuggah fanatics, they went, and they would kill Christian children, and they would use their blood, and they would do whatever they did with it. Meaning, it wasn't a matter that this was mainstream Jewish practice. So, so this, this, this young Palestinian child who was burnt to death um, last year. So we can say that, you know, they're loonies. But we can't say that Jews didn't do it. And, and now to say that, well, all Jews burn Palestinian children to death whenever they can, that's how the blind libels got started. It existed. It was real. It happened. But it didn't happen as a mainstream practice. It happened as a marginalized fanatical group. But somehow we all got tainted with the same brush. You should know that this book, it went on the market. It was sold out within a few, you know, a few weeks. And then it was subsequently pulled from the shelves. The second print was pulled from the shelves because Barilan was the Israeli government threatened to censure Barilan if they didn't censure the, the, this particular professor. So he made a retractment and uh, an apology but anyone who's forced to make an apology, it's like, you know, uh, you, you're, a stupid ele- you're a stupid cow. They said, take that back. All right, you're not a stupid cow. You know, it's like, I still think, you're like, I mean, I'm not sure what the, the chokhmah was in it. All right, so that's one theory. The second theory behind the blood libels, which is one I think that most people accept, and that will come a little bit later, is that reality is so much of anti-Semitism, I suppose this will lead into the non-religious anti-Semitism, but rather the economic theories of anti-Semitism, is that, People needed ways of getting themselves out of debt. And this will be something that we'll see, that uh, the, the Christians 
that were terribly in debt to Jewish moneylenders needed to find ways to exonerate themselves of that debt. And the best way to get rid of a creditor is to kill him. And so they had to find creative ways of killing the creditor. And that is going to become an enormous reason for um, some of the anti-Semitism. We'll, we'll go back to that in a second. Now, just the last thing about, I suppose, Christian anti-Semitism, religious anti-Semitism, this became the motivation for the enormous massacres that took place during the Crusades. So throughout, you know, all the Crusades, on, on route, many of the Crusades, much of the Crusades, especially those that left from England, you should know were financed by Jews because the original uh, intent of the Crusades was to go and redeem the Holy Land from, from, the, uh, from the Muslims. And en route, specifically through the communities, uh, the, the three great G communities in Germany, Spires, Worms, and Vermeiser, were completely decimated. Uh, the, the, the levels of killing in medieval Europe of Jews during the Crusades and later during the Khmelnytki massacres, um, the intensity of them paralleled in many ways, and to a certain degree, exceeded even that of the Holocaust, because the, the Holocaust was a well-oiled machine. Here we had hand-to-hand -hand butchering, and the, the, the way that they talk of the blood as it ran through the, you know, ran through the streets was something completely unparalleled. So, sorry, as far as religious So we'll, we'll get into, into that as another reason for anti-Semitism. The, the, the Christian anti-Semitism comes for two reasons. One is deicide, that we, we kill Jesus. And the, other, the second one, deicide. What does that mean? Deicide, killing of a god. Day, the word day is a, so, to inside, kill. So um, that was the main reason. The second reason which comes, and this was something which fueled Protestant anti-Semitism was the, the refusal to accept Jesus as the true saviour. So when Martin Luther came around in the 1500s, if I'm not mistaken, when Martin Luther came around and reformed the, the, the church, one of his big theories of reform was the reason that the Jews refused to accept the saviour was because of the corruption of the church and the, uh, the obvious flaws and failures within the Catholic, uh, Catholic system. That when the Jew could have his eyes opened to the Reformation, he would open his heart and embrace Jesus. And when the Jews refused to do so, and Martin Luther was, uh, was terribly uh, disappointed by the fact, it fueled the level of anti-Semitism even under the church we didn't really experience. Martin Luther becomes the real forefather of, uh, of the anti-Semitism that will evolve into racial anti-Semitism somewhere down the line. So our refusal to accept Jesus... Um, gave a certain level of right to the church to persecute us. That we, as refusing, as being almost you know, those that testify to the fact of our refusal to accept Jesus, we're worthy of death, and our, our downtrodden status in the, in the nations of the world was proof to the church that God had forsaken us. In fact, this became one of the reasons of, of the countries and of the groups that refused to acknowledge the state of Israel, in its assumption, the, uh, the Vatican was one because of the theological problems that it presented. That the, one of the great theories of Christianity was that God has forsaken the Jews because they had forsaken God. And the idea that the Jews could come back to the land and create their own, their own country was a sign that the Jews, somehow God still cares and reaches out. There was no greater proof of Christianity's correctness than the suffering of the Jew. And so this was a large problem. Now, religious anti-Semitism allowed an out, and that was to convert to Christianity. And even though the vast majority, well, almost the entirety of Ashkenazi Jewry, whenever given the opportunity to convert to, to Christianity or suffer pain of death, that death was often the cho you know, was, was chosen in preference. Not only was it chosen for themselves, but throughout the, the work, there's a, there's a book that we read on Tisha B'Av, Tisha B'Av being the saddest day of the Jewish year. So there's a book called Lamentations. And then there's something called Kinot, which are dirges. I don't know how you translate Kinot into English. But they're dirges, which are various poems and songs of sadness written throughout the millennium about Jewish suffering. And it talks about the dilemmas that Jewish families had when marauding crusaders were coming and murdering the parents and sending the children off to convents. 
and parents who are asking the questions, is it preferable for us to kill our own children rather than let them die as Jews rather than live as Catholics? So this is not too dissimilar what happened on top of Masada, but um, here it was uh, where Masada seemed to be different motivated idea that we would kill our own children out of love um, was something w which was a very real problem for um, European Ashkenazi Jews. Sephardi Jews had a different approach. The Sephardi Jews of, the, of Spain in particular, when they were given the opportunity to convert or be exiled, I wouldn't say majority, but a significant number of them decided to, make, to stay in Spain and Portugal and the like and to convert at least many of them externally only. Many of them beyond externals, but some of them externally only. And that is what sprung the Inquisition. The Inquisition um, was not an attempt to kill, it was not an attempt to kill Jews. It was an attempt to expose false converts. So by the time the Inquisition started, all the Jews had left Spain. All the people who identified themselves had left Spain and eventually left Portugal. The people that remained were those conversos or Moranos, as they were taught. And, and the question was, were these people really Jews or were they closet? You know, so were these people really Christians or were they closet Jews? And the Inquisition came to expose them. The Inquisition, we, we're going to, um, one of the monthly movies we've got is about the Jews of South America. So I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago about the, oh, probably next month, not, not March, April. But um, I, I mentioned, I don't know, some, okay, there's a book I recently read called Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, have I mentioned that in this? Uh, anyway, so, so um, just talking about the Jews that had made their way down to South America and the Caribbean and how many of them were, con they were all conversos that went there because the, the, the sword of the Inquisitor um, they were hoping would not come to the New World. It did. It did come to the New World. And so this story is about modern-day South Americans who can trace back their converso history and are now trying to come back to Judaism. Um, anything to get out of so anything to get to Israel but uh, anyway so that's that's Christian uh, Christian anti-semitism and uh, religious anti-semitism something that to a lesser degree we, we experience under the Muslims uh, at least through the Quran uh, a large part of uh, Muhammad's um, anti-semitic rhetoric was as a result of the Jews refusing to accept um, accept him as the genuine prophet but there's no question that throughout our history we've suffered a lot less uh, in theory under the hands of the Muslims than we have under the, under, the, under the Christians. That being said, it's not like we lived a good life under the Muslims. We just didn't suffer as much. Yeah, it's like, uh, anyway, okay. So, um, next few ones. So, the concept of the chosen people. So, that the Jews, we hate the Jews because the Jews think they're better than the rest of us. So, this I think, which from what, I, what I've read through, you know, the various literature, um, no one's really seriously ever claimed it because there's not a nation in the world that doesn't think they're better than everybody else. I mean, if the, the Jews think we are chosen, so I've got news. Tell me a nation that doesn't think they're the chosen. The Christians think that they're chosen. The Muslims think that they're chosen. So we have to be very careful in saying the reason, like, when, when an armchair you know, a, you know, a philosopher comes and tells you why he thinks, I think what, uh, there's a great quote by David Mitchell, Internet, assembl Internet Assembled Philosophies. Okay, so when people come with internet assembled philosophies and saying, you know why the Jews are hated because you're the chosen people, it's not coming from a deep sea. No one, I don't know how many Jews have been murdered because they, because the Jews thought they were better. Maybe other reasons behind it, but that that in of itself is uh, relatively limited, and and that being uh, you know from a Torah. Now it is it's interesting. The the Gemara comes and says the reason that Mount Sinai is called Sinai is because Sinai is sne. The word sne means to hate. And then when the Torah was given to the Jewish people, anti-Semitism came down to the world. That's the way the Gomorrah turns it out. So that the idea of the Jew being chosen, being something that is hated by the non-Jewish world, there is truth to it from a religious point of view. I'm not so sure there is one from a, let's say, from a Christian point of view. Interesting, we read about Amalek. So Amalek being the, the great anti-Semite of the Bible, um, his hatred, or there being the nation's hatred, was not for the Jews... Uh, if for any other reason other than the fact that the Jews represented morality and the Jews represented Torah. Um, that being said is we don't hear that much, although um, we will probably see a little bit of it a little bit later. Okay, next one is uh, Jews are outsiders. The Jews have never considered themselves really part of society. The Jews have always considered themselves apart. 
rather than being apart. You've got to get the weak pun. But um, the idea that somehow our general contributions, we have always seen the Jew as a fair-weather friend, that they're there when, we need, when they need us, but when, you know, when times are tough, they're not. And we spoke a little bit about this last week, about the concept of universalism and particularism, that most of us were very happy to live in South Africa when the going was good, and when the going got tough, we all got out of there. Um, our concept of contributing in, the, in national service, in the army and the like, was something that was very far, few and far between, or at least it was perceived as few and far between. So to that end, I, I'd like to read at least a few uh, excerpts from something that I did quote in a drosha. Uh, I don't know why I would have quoted in a drosha, so if I don't know when I quoted it, there's a good chance you don't remember either. So this is from, an art, from a, a famous article by Mark Twain called, uh, concerning the Jews written in 1898. Does anyone remember me quoting this off the pulpit? Okay, so it is based on a, one article he wrote that he had just made, a, he had observed the fact that there was a big ruckus in the Austrian parliament and in the, in the, as the uh, National Guard, I suppose, was brought in to, to calm everybody down, an enormous anti-Semitic uh, pseudo-pogrom broke out. And, the question, and he was just mentioning it, so he got a number of letters to the editor and the particular one that he quotes just asked a number of questions um, regarding... Mark Twain's opinion about why there's anti-Semitism. So he says, now will you kindly tell me why this is the letter to the editor, or letter to him. In your judgment, the Jews have thus ever been, and even now, in these days of supposed intelligence, the butt of baseless, vicious animosities. I dare say that for centuries there has been no more quiet, undisturbing, and well-behaving citizen as a class than that same Jew. It seems to me that ignorance and fanaticism cannot alone account for these horrible and unjust persecutions. Tell me, therefore, from your vantage point of cold view, what, in your mind, is the cause? So he lines out his question. He has six questions that were based on the various assumptions made by the, uh, the author of the letter. One, that the Jews are well-behaved citizen. Two, can ignorance and fanaticism alone account for this unjust treatment? Three, can Jews do anything to improve the situation? Four, the Jews have no party and there are non-participants. This is politically speaking. We don't have a party, we don't have participants, so why we hate it? Five, will the persecution ever come to an end? And six, what has become of the golden rule? Do you know what the golden rule is? Golden rule is a Christian, huh? Do unto, do unto others as you will have them to do unto you, which apparently applies to everybody except the Jew. So, so he talks over here. This one. He talks about the fact that the, the, the Jewish misrepresentation or underrepresentation in the army and general, uh, well, you know, general society, the inability to contribute in any major way, is an obvious sign that people are going to hate them. That why are we shouldering the burden where the Jews are not? He does write an addendum to this article saying that he actually got his facts wrong. He, he quotes over here that there was um, in, uh, that there was a particular. Oh no, that's, that's a different article. But he does over here write back and say, you know, I said that Jews were underrepresented in the army. That is in fact not true. And we do see throughout the the various wars. Now, there's no question in my mind that Jews are underrepresented in the Australian army and most probably in the American army. Um, I don't know. Maybe in the American army, it's a bit better. I have a, a friend that I was in yeshiva with, who is a chaplain in the American army, and he was serving in Iraq. So, I mean, you know, our chaplains serve at Hyde Park Barracks, yeah? You know, like, I mean, I haven't, you know, that we have a couple of rabbis here who get on the regalia every now and again, and, you know, they never drive further than, I don't know, Gorbin. But, uh, you know, but uh, I know you guys in the American Army who've gone, but it is very few and far between. Okay, so that's uh, the concept of being outsiders. So the two main ones that we talk, which I think are very relevant to the modern era, is uh, the economic theories of Jewish uh, of anti-Semitism, so the the simple idea being that the Jew um, has too much money, and it is largely due to his um, his disproportionate wealth that has created this anti-Semitism. Now, what's fascinating about this is the disproportionate wealth that belongs to the Jews is largely as a result of various persecutions that were placed upon him by the Christians. So. So uh, let, let, me, let me quote now. It's not often you're going to hear in a history sure uh, Malcolm Gladwell ever been quoted. People are familiar with Malcolm Gladwell? Okay, Malcolm Gladwell is a very well-known author. He's written about five or six books. He's a, he writes for the, the New Yorker. 
very, very entertaining, phenomenal speaker, if you ever want to listen to him online. So in the book of Outliers is the story of success. So what he does over here is he shows you that success is so much more than just determination and hard work. It is often where you are just being the right person, the right place, at the right time, um, will allow you those success. So he tells over here, and this is um, from a guy named Joe Flom. He talks about that in the 1960s and 70s, um, Jewish lawyers, the, the whole law industry in New York was run by the Protestants, the WASPs. So C Catholics and Jews, for a large part of American history, suffered the same uh, discrimination that they couldn't get jobs in, uh, in, in you know, also the multinationals, but in large corporations. So Jewish lawyers were marginalized and were not allowed into the uh, corporate world and could not, so they had to create businesses for themselves. But how do you create, you know, what area would you do business? So he says, uh, well, else? the work that came in the door to the generation of Jewish lawyers from the Bronx and Brooklyn in the 1950s and 60s was the work that the white shoe firms disdained, i.e. The, the waspy firms disdained, litigation and more important proxy fights, which were legal maneuvers at the center of any hostile takeover bid. An investor would, would take an interest in the company, he would denounce the management as incompetent and send letters to the shareholders trying to get them to give them his proxy so he could vote out the firm's executors. And to run the proxy fight, the only lawyer, the, the, uh, the only lawyer the investor could get was someone like Joe Flom. So Joe Flom is the example he uses in here, was a Jewish lawyer, he couldn't get a job, started his own little practice, and what did he do? He said, I'm going to focus on this very small thing that everybody hates, no one gets involved with it, all the big firms couldn't be bothered with it, there's no money in it, I'll get involved with it. What happens is things change. So is it... Then came 1970s. The old aversion to lawsuits fell away by the wayside. It became easier to borrow money. Federal regulations relaxed. Markets became internationalized. Investors became more aggressive. And the result was a boom in the number and size of corporate takeovers. In 1980, quote, In 1980, if you went to the business roundtable um, uh, and took service about whether hostile takeover should be allowed, two-thirds would have said no, Flom said. Now the vote would be unanimously yes. Companies needed to be defended against lawsuits from rivals. Hostile suitors needed to be beaten back. Investors who wanted to devour unwilling targets needed help with a legal strategy, and shareholders needed formal representation. The dollar figures were involved were enormous. From the mid-1970s to the end of the 1980s, the amount of money involved in mergers and acquisitions every year on Wall Street increased 2,000%, peaking at almost a quarter of a trillion dollars. All of a sudden, the things that the old line law firms didn't want to do Hostile takeovers and litigation were things that every law firm wanted to do. And who was the expert in these two suddenly critical areas of law? The once marginal second-tier law firm started by the people who couldn't get jobs at the downtown firms 10 and 15 years earlier. The success of the Jews on Wall Street was because they were marginalized. So, that's Malcolm Gladwell. This isn't uh, some Jewish historian. To the best of my knowledge, he has no Jewish uh, connections whatsoever, but what 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 happened, and and, and that that's a recent story. But this is what's going to happen throughout Europe. So, so back to um, to Mark Twain. This is this is his negative uh, sentiments. This is what he says. He says. So he says, why, why is the negative, what is the origin of the feeling, these negative, negative sentiments towards you? He says, when I was a boy, in the back settlements of the Mississippi Valley, where gracious and beautiful Sunday school simplicity and unpracticality prevailed, the Yankee was hated with a splendid energy. The Yankee were the people from the northern states. But religion had nothing to do with it. In trade, the Yankee was to be held five times the match of the Westerner. His shrewdness, his insight, his judgment, his knowledge, his enterprise, his formidable cleverness in applying these forces were frankly confessed and most competently cursed. In the cotton states, after the war, so it says the Yankees, so in the southern states, they look to the guys, the northern states, they're really smart. You know, they know how to do business. So in the cotton states, that's the southern states, after the war, the simple and ignorant Negroes made the crops for the white planter on shares. The Jew came down in force, set up shop on the plantation, supplied all the Negroes' wants on credit, and at the end of the season was proprietor of the Negro's share of the present, of the present crop and part of his share of the next one. Before long, the whites detested the Jews and is doubtful if the Negro loved him. 
The Jew has been legislated out of Russia. The reason is not concealed. The movement was instituted because the Christian peasant and villager stood no chance against his commercial abilities. He was always ready to lend money on a crop, sell vodka and other necessities of life on credit while the crop was going. When settlement came, he owned the crop. And the next year or the year after, he owned the farm. Like Joseph. Okay. In dull and ignorant England of John's time, everybody got into debt to the Jew. He gathered all lucrative enterprises into his hand. He was the king of commerce. He was ready to be helpful in all profitable ways. He even financed crusades for the rescue of the sepulcher. That's the church of the Holy Sepulchre. That's where Jesus was crucified. To wipe out his account with the nation and restore business to its natural and incompetent channels, he had to be banished the realm. The way that the Jew, the anti-Semitism was economic, was it wasn't a fact that they have the money and we hate them. Is they have the money and in order to get ourselves out of debt, we have to get rid of them. Expulsion came as a result of economic debt to the Jew. Yeah? So had anybody else, had any other group become in charge of the finances, they would have equally been hated. No one likes the money lender. Listen, yeah, some of us have mortgages. So we don't like the bank. Why don't we like the bank? They gave us money. We just given them. You know, it was an arrangement. But no one likes owing money, and if you can, and if you're owing money to a very specific group, the easiest way to get, you know, to deal with to deal with economic problems, is to banish the problem. And that is becomes, according to Mark Twain, this becomes the reason behind the expulsion from Spain. This becomes expulsion from most of the countries in Europe. It might have been cloaked in religious piety, but it was an economic. Reason we we owed the Jew money. Now, why did we have so much money? So this this is where it would dovetail into next week. So why were the Jews so good at business? Because in every society, so let's say, trade after trade was taken away from. This is Mark Twain again. Trade after trade was taken away from the Jew by statute till practically none was left. He was forbidden to engage in agriculture. He was forbidden to practice law. He was forbidden to practice medicine, except amongst the Jews. He was forbidden to the handicrafts. Even seats of learning and the schools of science had been close to him, against this tremendous against his, this tremendous antagonist. Still. Almost bereft of employment, he found ways to make money, even ways to get rich. Also ways to invest his takings well, for usury was not denied him. The church has a problem that the Jews have as well. There's a mitzvah in the Torah, it comes a number of times, it came in two weeks ago, it's Pasha, Pasha Mishpatim. You may not lend money to another Jew with interest, which makes a very difficult way of making money. Christians believe that as well. So the church had enormous amount of funds that they wanted invested. They could not lend the money to, the, to their constituents, so they used a middleman. And the middleman was the Jew. The Jew could sustain. Now, interest in the, you know, we, we complained that, oh, interest rates have gone up. Interest rates are, you know, you know, in the dark ages were in the line of 100, 200, 300 percent was not unheard of. Jews were not uh, exploiting something that wasn't being done. They were just following with the trend. But that was one area of Jews where we were money lenders, and the other where we were tax men. The tax man worked, um, where do we see this happen? This works, if you've ever gotten a letter from some random uh, debt collecting organization that they bought your debt. You want hear about this? I hope it's never happened to you. But if you haven't paid, someone will buy. So you owe $100 to the government for a parking fine that you haven't paid. They give the government uh, you know, 70, and they come to claim the 100 from you. And that was the, that's, that's how the tax man worked. It wasn't that we, so now the tax man is collecting money on behalf of the government. The Jew didn't do that. The Jew bought the debt from the government and went and got it from the Christian. It's almost like factory, because you make in modern day too. Well, it's a cute, I don't know, whatever, however you want to term it. I'm, I'm the rabbi. We've got the financing. How did the Jews get into the position in the first place where people stopped them being dropped? No, so this is throughout Jewish history in Europe. What slowly happened is Jews were being denied access, so we couldn't be doctors. We couldn't. So the Jews were denied. We weren't allowed to own land. The Pale of Settlement, which will become throughout you know the 1700s, which are parts of uh, Russia. I imagine many of your ancestors came from the Pale of Settlement, which was a place that was uninhabitable. Uh, there was just nothing we could do in those places. So. 
So we had no way. But the church saw the Jew as a useful pawn. So we could, it's not that we didn't want to become doctors. Is that we would not. So where Jews, again, we mentioned this two weeks ago, that where Jews are given opportunity, they jump at it. And we'll see this like in the modern era. So Jews are, oh, my son the doctor. But for thousands, well, hundreds of years, there was no such thing as my son the doctor because there was no opportunity. for. From the time of the Rambam until the 1800s, or the late 1700s, early 1800s, there was no such thing as my, Jew, my, my son the doctor. So they slowly, so what will become the question, which we'll deal with next week, is about Jewish success. Was it nurture? Was it nature? Are Jews so you know, unbelievably clever? Or was it the fact that we'd been forced into these positions? There are a couple of things that worked in our favor. One is the social capital. So social capital, if you're not familiar with the term, is the fact that Jews have networks. That Jews have been able to, throughout our history, we all know that you can go anywhere in the world and just say, hi, I'm Jewish. And chances are, not only will you be offered a place for Shabbos and a place to spread, if you were to ask people if you could borrow money, I mean, how many guys do we get here knocking on the door? Never seen the guy in life. He says, I've come from Israel, I need some money. So you might not give him, you might not write him a blank check, but you help the guy out. You know, there's, there's the social capital, whether it be social capital or that we, we honed our art by force of necessity. And those who didn't, the way that uh, he says, that Twain says it, is that, um, let me just read already. Yeah. Still, uh, almost bereft, he found a waste of money. Okay. In the hard conditions suggested, the Jew without brains could not survive, and the Jew with brains had to keep them in good training and well sharpened up or starve. So, so he's like sort of ages of restriction to the tool which was the... Uh, to the one tool which the law was not able to take from him, his brain, have made that tool singularly competent. Ages of compulsory disuse of his hands have atrophied them, and he never uses them now. And that's where Jackie Mason will come and say, you know, where, where, you know, when the car has got a flat tire, and the Jews don't know that there's a flat tire because you don't know how to change a car wheel, and you don't know how to fix anything, no, etc., etc. Rabbi, you know what's so interesting about this is that the, uh, well, for me, is that despite the accumulation of wealth in the hands of the, of the Jewish people, which should imbue them with a lot of disproportionate power, that you can buy favors, you can do all sorts of stuff, and yet they were, we were set upon uh, and, and ostracized. Well, to, uh, to add to that is that um, there was, I think it's the Fugupan, if I it, was a Japanese plan around the Second World War, where the Japanese, if you see, the Japanese were in cahoots with Hitler throughout the war. But how did a lot of Jews survive the war? Was going through Japan, in Shanghai. The, the whole Mir Yeshiva was under Japanese rule at the time. Sugahara, but, yeah. but Shanghai was under Japanese rule in the second world. You're right, it is part of but that, that all under the Japanese rule, that the Japanese were very favorable. And it was part of this Fugu plan where they said, a, a people of such stature, you want them friends, you don't want them enemies. So that may be true, but what will happen through uh, is it's not the fact that we have money and power, is we ha- they have our money and power, and therefore they needed to be stripped of it. But it is something that uh, is, uh, um, it is quite fascinating. Now, um, one of the in, the, in the early 1900s, um, there was a fabricated um, transcript of a secret meeting that took place in 1903 called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was written by, allegedly, uh, it wasn't the KGB because it precedes the KGB, but the Russian Secret Service, of a a secret meeting that the Jewish leaders of the world um, get together once every hundred years and plot the taking over of the world. And this was something that is still around. They were selling it at the Lakemba Mosque a few years back. It was on their, on their open day. Someone went along and found it on their shelves. It was republished in English. Anyone want to know who, who sponsored the first publication of the Protocols of Elders of Zion in English? Henry Ford. If you, uh, Henry Ford was a, a rabid anti-Semite. So, um, so the Protocols of Elders of Zion. And this is something which you still believe. There's a, a book called Them by a guy named John Ronson. The men who stare at goats, the psychopath test. I've quoted him a few times. Uh, entertaining writer. So there are there are people who still believe, you know, serious, you know, I wouldn't say serious people, but serious groups with people that are quite distinguished in society who still believe that there's a secret organization of Jews that are plotting to take over the world. And let's be honest, it's it's hard 
you know, to poo-poo it so much when you look at the statistics of the powerful Jews in the world that are so disproportionate. You, know, you look at what percentage of, you know, are Jews of the world's population and what percentage are we of the, the top ABCs and Ds. It's just, uh, you get it. You know, I, I, it, it's, it's, it may be bizarre, in it, but it's hard to say that it is completely irrational. But anyway, okay. So that is the, um, I just, uh, just finish up with Mark Twain, because uh, it is just such a phenomenal article, this one, that hits the nail on the head so many times. He himself is trying to, as best uh, objective uh, readers, you want to see this. Uh, uh, it's hard to find the whole article online, but it does exist. I'm persuaded that in Russia, Austria, and Germany, nine-tenths of the hostility to the Jews come from the average Christian's inability to compete successfully with the Jew in business, either straight business or questionable sort. Um, it was this, that 85% of the successful lawyers of Berlin were Jews, and that's about the same percentage of the great and lucrative businesses of all sorts in Germany with the hands of the Jewish race. Isn't that an amazing confession? It was just, it was but another way of saying that the population of 48 million, of whom only 500,000 were registered as Jews, 85% of the brains and honesty of the whole was lodged in the Jews. So, you know, statistics like that, it's hard to lie with. With most people... With most people, of a necessity, bread and meat take first rank, religion second. I'm convinced the persecution of the Jew is not due in any large degree to religious prejudice. No, the Jew is a money-getter, and in getting his money, he is a very serious obstruction to less capable neighbors on the same quest. I think that is the trouble. So, so uh, all right. So that is, um, what, what is, uh, this quote, I mean, this is, this this quite uh, I don't I don't know how I missed it the first time, so he talks he, he, he over here talks about says you know the head so this is in 1898. Do anyone know what happened in 1897? First Zionist Congress. So he talks about it. He says you know there's this guy Herzl. So there's this great idea that they're going to start. He says. Uh, Speaking of concentration, Dr. Herzl has a clear insight to the value of that. Have you heard of his plan? He wishes to gather the Jews of the world together in Palestine with a government of their own under the suzerainty of the Sultan. Suzerainty. There you go. I, I suppose. At the convention in Bern last year, there were delegates from everywhere, and the proposal was received with decided favor. Now, if this is not a prophet, I'm not the Sultan, and I'm not objecting. But if that concentration of the cunningest brains in the world were going to be made in a free country, I think it would be politic to stop it. It would not be well to let the race find out its strength. If the horse knew theirs, we would not ride it any more. How's that for a quote? That is, uh, I mean, that is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Put, let the Jew out of, the, out of its stirrups and we will have an economic powerhouse that no country in the world will be able to compete in 1898 that was written. Uh, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. I just think that, that uh, Mark Twain, I, I've heard everybody quotes the last, if, if, if you talk Mark Twain concerning the Jews, they will, they quote the last, literally the last paragraph of this, which I'll read at the end because it's just fascinating. But that those parts, which I think are even more fascinating, are ignored. Okay, last theory. Huh? Uh, listen, in in this article, in this article, he just seems very neutral. He's just saying, he's uh, someone says, him, "Why is anti-Semitism?" He says, "Well, this is my two cents. This is what I think." He doesn't write anything here that for me specks of anti-Semitism. It's 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 definitely um, harsh to the ear meaning that a very sensitive Jew might call it anti-Semitic. But you read it, I don't think it's anti-Semitism. He's just trying to, you know, these are observations, that the Jews are... Although, oh, Rabbi, I'm thinking the last paragraph you just quoted is quite revealing because he talks about if we should not let the Jews create their own state because lest they become... Uh, well, he says, it's, he, he says it's politic. He says politically it's, it's probably not a smart move for us because we as countries will not be able to sustain ourselves if there's a place like Israel around. I, don't, I think it's self-preservation rather than anti-Semitism. It's brilliant. It's, it's, again, right, put that on your next Yom Ha'atzmaut uh, event. Okay. The last form of anti-Semitism that we'll deal with this evening is po possibly uh, the, the harshest. Because even though economic theory um, might have been a, a, a real bone of contention for the Jewish people, the reality is that large parts of our history, I mean, every, how many of you can say that your grandparents came to this country without, a, you know, without their shirt on their back? Jews were poor. 
the vast majority of Europe, you know, it could be in Western Europe, Jews were very successful, and there were definitely times that Jews were successful, but for the vast majority of Eastern Europe, for the vast majority of the Middle Ages, Jews were penniless. Yet the anti-Semitism in no way, de, you know, um, uh, uh, de, 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 what's my name? Diminish wasn't the word I was using, looking for, but it will work. So the anti-Semitism was rife throughout Eastern Europe, dis despite the fact that they didn't have the finances. And this is one of the things that you find about anti-Semitism, is like, um, I hate him because he's, uh, he's fat. Well, he's not fat, he's thin. Well, I hate him because he's thin. I hate him because he's tall, but he's not only short. I hate him because he's short. Like, there's whatever reason you find anti-Semitism, you'll find that, well, it's not entirely true. There have been tons of poor Jews. There have been Jews, they would say, Jews, they hold themselves apart. So... How many times throughout Jewish history have we desperately tried to assimilate? Did it get rid of anti-Semitism? No, because we didn't accept Jesus into like, you know, what about other nations that didn't accept Jesus? Were they, you know, were they persecuted in the same? So the last one, and this is the, the one that we suffer, have suffered most in the last two hundred years, and that is of racial anti-Semitism. That all of a sudden, you know, through as as the Enlightenment came into Europe, ironically. The, 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 his, the anti-Semitism became something that was not so much, to quote uh, Moshe Hess, that it was no longer about his peculiar religion, it was now about his peculiar nose. That all of a sudden there was something endemic within the Jew that himself was uh, genetically inferior, as a creation was inferior. And therefore the bloodline of the Jew was something that was the problem and needed to be eradicated. Up until that point in time, the Jew always had salvation, and that was through embracing Christianity, embracing Islam, um, leaving his possessions and the like. Once racial anti-Semitism came on the scene, all of a sudden the Jew had no escape. There's a, there's a poem, um, I, I don't recall the author, but it says, it, it, it tells the story of Jewish history. Uh, Jewish history. So the first line is, you may not live among us as Jews, you may not live among us, you may not live. And so that is the progression of Jewish history of anti-Semitism. So this was really championed before, but mainly by Adolf Hitler. Now, Mein Kampf, if you are aware, um, in January, served the 70-year ban on Mein Kampf um, had run its course, and now Mein Kampf is, this is in Germany, that is, Mein Kampf is now readily available on the shelves of German bookstores and the like. Now, there's a fascinating article on, is it tablet? It's not, it's not the, well, it is the original one, it's a commentator's version. It's, a commentator. it's like a commentator or a commentator's Minecraft. What you were <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know enough about it. But there was something on the Times of Israel today that came out, which just talked about what was fascinating is the Jew, the Jewish, like, when Minecraft was published, um, there were 30 odd Jewish newspapers in Germany and surround, and only one of them carried a review of it. And basically, uh, marginalized Hitler as a crazy man, then all of his theories and rhetoric were nothing then childish uh, and, and nothing to be taken seriously. So we we all thought that of Hitler to our, our own peril, that crazy people apparently, you know, when the, their time has come, the, the Gemara, the Mishnah and Perka Avot comes and says, you know, you should not be brazen to anyone because every dog has his day. Not, it's not the exact term it uses, but that's the, in essence what it is, is that every person has their moment. And when the moment comes, you don't want to be on the bad side of it. So Hitler really championed this. It was really through something called eugenics. So if you're familiar with eugenics, it's the study of uh, gen genetic weaknesses. As much as, uh, as bad as Hitler was, there were many people who suffered under Hitler way before the Jews. First and foremost, those who were physically and mentally uh, handicapped. The T T14 or T4 program, T4 program, that uh, exterminated those with physical and mental Handicaps, 100,000 odd people killed in the way or before the final solution had ever been contemplated. So the idea of getting rid of those that were genetically inferior, we've all seen this, the, 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 the diagrams of the Jews, you know, with the calipers on their head and just trying to show that the Jewish brain was different. And the, and the idea that the Jew was, um, was racially inferior was something that was championed by Hitler and unfortunately embraced by the German public. Um, I suppose to end off, and this would be the last area of um, anti-Semitism, is where the, the overlap between what is now become called anti-Zionism 
and anti-Semitism, and this new form of anti-Semitism that is that is cloaked up in a in, in a in a robe of piety. And this is the thing: is that those who champion social justice invariably take the side of the weaker party as the the underdog. And in the Israel-Palestinian debate, there's no question the Palestinian is the underdog. I, I do deba- uh, I don't debate. I have discussion groups with members of the Uniting Church, who, if you are not familiar with, are very pro, are very supportive of the BDS. And as a member of the uh, let's say the Board of Deputies Task Force, we try to tell them not to have a BDS. But they, so one of the things, let's say me personally have been trying to say is like. You know, if you Israel versus Palestine, there's no question Israel is the powerhouse, Palestinians are the underdog. But if you just zoom a little bit outwards, you see that there's this enormous sea of Arab, you know, anti-Israel sentiment with this little place called Israel. You know, that, you know David and Goliath, you know, Goliath and Goliath. When there's a much, you know, when there are thirty much bigger Goliaths are surrounding him. Anyway, it's been to very little avail. So that fine line between genuine social justice for the plight of the Palestinian people, which I believe has a legitimate place in social discourse, and it's spilling (coughs) over into pure anti-Semitism, is is a very, it's it's not such a fine line. As much, well, it, it is so rife that the idea that, you know, Jews being murdered around the world because of the you know the Palestinian plight that uh, whether it be you know in France well the Palestinians feel or that innocent civilians in any place in the world can be targeted because they're Jewish and therefore it automatically makes them not innocent. I I have so I will, uh, can I go on a soapbox for a second? So so I mean this Walid Ali character that's in the news quite regularly because he's uh, he's a uh, he champions but he, he's very very uh, very. He's very clever with his remarks. When, when the France massacre happened, he said that he believes that no innocent people should ever be targeted. And so the question is, how do you define innocent? And it is clear that Israel and Jews are never innocent. And since Israel and Jews are never innocent, they're always legitimate targets. And um, this idea of blaming the victim, we, we see this all over the time, that, well... I mean, uh, we have Israeli members. So anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, really is, is is the newest form, and I don't believe that every form of anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, but I do believe that a large part of them are, and it's one has to be very careful. And so, yeah. So, unfortunately, anti-Semitism. What I didn't speak about this evening, which I really wanted to, and I'm sorry, and time has escaped me, was what is the Jewish response to anti-Semitism? Perhaps, if if you can, I you will indulge me for two more minutes. Sure. Um, when the Torah comes and says, "Why was the first temple destroyed?" When the Talmud comes and says, "Why was the first temple destroyed?" So it says because of Gilorayot Shvichodamim and Avodazara through idol worship, sexual morality, and murder. And the second temple um, was because of Sinat Chinam, was for basis hatred between one Jew and his fellow. One of the things that the Talmud never says is the reason that the second temple was destroyed was because it was the anti-Semitism of the Roman occupiers, that they didn't like the Jews, they didn't like our life, they wanted to destroy us because of the money, because of this, that, and the other. The finger in Jewish history has always been pointed inwards that we look to ourselves, why is this coming before us? It must be because of something that we've done, not because this is because of them. Anti-Semitism from a Jewish historical perspective is nothing more than the stick in the hand of, of the master who's beating his dog. We are the dog, the nations of the world are the stick, and Hashem is the master. And what we need to do is ensure that we, not like the dog, don't bite the stick, but understand that that stick has been manipulated by Hashem. That whether Hashem uses Egypt, which is so far away that when we say the reason we had to be enslaved in Egypt was because of A, B, C, and D, no one sleeps badly at night. When we say the reason that the temple was destroyed and over a million people 2,000 years ago were murdered and thousands, hundreds of thousands taken into captivity because we did not speak and treat one another respectfully, no one stays awake at night. No one is troubled by it. As soon as we start getting a bit closer to home and we say the reason there's anti-Semitism is because it's Hashem trying to send us a message, we become very, very sensitive. So I don't know that in 
100 years, 200 years, 500 years, we'll be able to look back and say, ah, we, we, it was our own, our own failings that brought this upon ourselves. But the Jewish historical response has always been, we have to be in charge of our own destiny. We cannot say that we are victims. We have to be you know, masters of our destiny. And that necessitates that when Hashem sends a message to remind us of something, that we wake up and listen to it rather than uh, blame the messenger. So that's in, 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 that's in a nutshell. But I would not be brazen, as many uh, rabbin, rabbis have, to think that we know what that reason is. So it's one thing to say that the temple and the like, they had much broader shoulders than me. You start talking about more modern-day atrocities, to start thinking that I know God's, uh, I know what the divine plan is. So I think we get ourselves into a lot of danger and land up in nothing short of purely offensive when we start to hypothesize those reasons. But are there reasons? So Jewish philosophy would say, yes. Sure. Um, if you have a look at what's going on in the world today uh, and the rise of, um, of um, Islam in the sense of the, these marginalized Islamic um, groups, there is a, 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 a large trend uh, against that whole brand of Islam almost to the point where it's pushing some people who would traditionally have been anti-Jewish or anti-Zionist onto the side of the Jews. Because I've noticed uh, that people are speaking out, that, that you know, they find out that I'm Jewish in a business sense, people that otherwise wouldn't have even brought the subject up and are now talking to me about, you know, how the Jews and the Christians have got to sort of get together to fight this this uh, this rising tide of, of 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 Islam. So my question is, where do you see this all ending up? Because I I see um, I see um, even from what the what the Pope has been saying recently, and what the Christian communities uh, have been what I've been reading about the Christian communities, they're reaching out more than I've ever noticed uh, to, to mm -hmm. Judaism, um, and, 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 I think, and I think it's got something to do with what's going on in the world. Well, listen, you could say the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Um, there's no question that under the last three popes, um, so about uh, two, three months ago was the 50th anniversary of Nostra Aetate, which is the, um, the great declaration of Vatican II that, that the Jews are no longer responsible for the death of Jesus. And, and that has really set a, a trajectory for Jewish-Christian relationships to become much closer. The current pope um, has very much encouraged Christians to learn more about their Jewish heritage and that they should learn about the religion that Jesus lived. So I've been called in on a number of different occasions to teach Christians and Catholics in particular um, about you know how to learn Torah like a like a like a Jew. Um, so that is true. Um, is it is it a response to what's happening in the Islamic world? Um, I don't know. Um, there's there's no question there are a lot of synergies that. But I think it's really you know we're looking at the world and saying that um, there's extremist elements coming out of the Middle East and the the Christian world and the Jewish world have a lot more in common. And they do have, I wouldn't say a mutual enemy, but I would just say that they both are on the same team as far as fighting um, extremist Islam. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you very much. Have a pleasant evening.